Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. If you would open in your Bibles, please, to the book of John, chapter 4. I know that I was only gone for a week, and thank you, Pastor Terry, for, for your words. Tracy and I were listening on the road. Uh, basically, we started listening in Julesburg and, and uh, got through the, the sermon. Thank you very much for that. We appreciated that. And then we didn't get clear through Sunday school uh, uh, afterwards because we got home too soon. Um, but we had a, a good time, and, and uh, my cousin's... Uh, Memorial service went well, um, gave me an opportunity to see people I hadn't seen in some cases for um, uh, 40 or more years. And, and uh, so my family's very small, um, my, my known family. Um, uh, my mom was an only child, so there are no cousins or anything on that side. And, and um, my dad's sister had three children and it was her oldest that passed away six weeks younger than than I was so my brother was there my wife and I <clears throat> my wife and I and our two cousins my youngest cousin a girl Michelle is married and so they were um, about eight of us sitting at the head table in this room and and everybody got to share their story about my cousin Jimmy and then I was supposed to close that down with, with a, uh, whatever I chose, and I chose to close it down with an encouragement to follow Christ. And so for me, it was a, 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 an interesting time. I stewed over it. Um, he passed away in July, and we didn't have his memorial service until October. And so I had three months. Um, by the way, for those of you who are wondering, that's not the best plan to approach life is to worry about something for three months. <laughs> but I am normal. So anyway, we had a good time uh, with that, uh, saying hi to all the old high school chums that my cousins had, um, and and to see how people uh, turned out, and and to hear uh, the thank yous from people who knew Christ, saying, oh, thank you for what you said. It was just a great, great uh, time of of hopefully planting seed, and also seeing that that the seed that evidently someone else planted in some of those people's lives has has brought fruit, and they are following Christ. So anyway, it was awesome. All right, so here we are. We've been talking about harvest time faith. Let me just quickly give you this understanding. Harvest time faith is seeing heaven's offer of a present time harvest. Harvest time faith is seeing heaven's offer of a present time harvest. So you need harvest time faith to live your life because oftentimes we say we want God to deliver things, but we don't notice it when he's preparing to deliver things. And we're almost always surprised by what God does. And when I began to study this out um, uh, two or three months ago, one of my little things that I said is, God, I want to stop being surprised by what you do. I want to live in an understanding that expects this spirit of expectation, that expects your grace, your favor, your mercy to be poured out on your people. Rather than saying, oh God, we have to live just right, and we got to stand on our head in a corner just right, we got to talk just right, and all the, God, I just want to see your favor, your grace, your mercy poured out, and I don't want to be surprised by it, I want to be expectant of it. 
And that's what Harvest Time Faith became to me. We looked in John chapter 4. I have it for the screen for you. We do have it in the screen. So it says, do not say, there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. The principle behind this in my world is God comes to us and tells us things that align themselves with what we naturally experience. He used parables to do that. He showed us how a farmer plants a seed and it, it, it sprouts up and grows and he doesn't understand how. We see that this, the word of God is a seed that reproduces in us and, and, and that the path we're on affects how it reproduces the soil. that we, we see all those natural things. This happened likely at a time where things had just been planted. And so when he said, don't say there's four months, he wasn't telling them, to, to lose their natural expectation, he was telling them to gain their heavenly expectation. To look up into, har- into heaven and see that God is pouring out a harvest. I would have been well served over the several months that I stewed over my cousin's memorial service using this. Ver- I was teaching this during that time. But using this scripture and saying, you know, don't say there's just too much to just lift up your eyes and see the harvest that God's pouring out and see those people that God's going to send to give honor and, and memorialize my cousin. See them as a harvest field. I'd have been well served to do that, but I was just teaching it so you could get it. Do not say. Lift up your eyes. You've got to change your perspective to see what God is offering. And he tells you what to notice. He says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. There are spiritual outpourings called fields. This is not just little drips of things. This is acreage of things that God's giving us the ability to see. And he says they're already white for harvest. He said, I'm pouring you out the ability to be involved in the harvest that is heaven's intention for this time. We also use John chapter 16 and verse number 12, where we find Jesus saying, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And I want to emphasize the now part. We are always going through a process where we can't handle what God has for us immediately. We need to develop a capacity. You need to have room in your spiritual cup for these things to fit. And oftentimes we are so almost like gravitationally pulled to natural understanding that we don't have any room for spiritual understanding. So we don't have room for what God wants to show us. You cannot bear them or literally lift them up to carry them into your life. We don't have room to do that. We don't have the ability to do that now. His implication is he's going to continue to speak to us. In fact, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but rather by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's preparing us to get some room. It's actually... So, here's the technical term. The technical term is dispossess. When God called the children of Israel into the promised land, you may remember that the promised land was filled with people who weren't always enthused about the children of Israel coming. 
God had to dispossess them. He had to change the ownership of the land in the spirit realm. When Israel showed up on the banks, on the, on, the, on the border, and remember, where you are to where you're supposed to be, the gap in between is almost always filled with a place you don't want to go and people you don't want to see. There's always a gap in the here's where I am, but here's where God's calling me. There are giants in the land that God has dispossessed, literally removed their statement of ownership. You remember when they didn't have water and, and, and uh, I wish I could remember where this was, and they dug trenches. So he says, just dig trenches. There's no water anywhere. But overnight, God filled them with water. When the sun come up, their enemies were blinded by the reflection off of the water and were killed. Israel didn't lose anything. Here's my point. God had dispossessed them of ownership, therefore giving Israel the heaven right to the property. Does that make sense? God took care of them in the, in the, in the wilderness for 40 years so that the right people could die. What a great God that is. I hope I'm not one of the people who has to die before we can go into the promised land. But some of them looked at the gap between where they were and where God said they could go. See the rivers and the, and the valleys and the giants. Remember in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, he says, And we were grasshoppers in our own sight. See, they didn't get the idea that God had dispossessed. And, and he, he literally removed the statement of ownership from the spirit world. If you could get this, you would never be bugged by the devil again. Because Jesus dispossessed the devil's right and authority to rule on your earth. But what do we do? Look at the devil, what he's doing. He doesn't own it anymore. Go build your fence over there and keep him off. You say, well, I couldn't do that. He's too powerful. He doesn't own it anymore. He's like a squatter on Jesus's land. I am Jesus's land. Did you know that, that God stopped raining down manna the day the children of Israel walked into the promised land? He said to them, you will eat of the harvest of this land. And he never gave them another welfare payment of manna. Isn't that awesome? Why? Because they, they, were, they lost their spiritual right to possess the land. It was given to Jesus. So when, when we face certain things, we need to recognize that God has given us the right to own these things. You say, well, I've never heard anybody say anything like that. That's the most prideful thing I've ever heard. You really believe you own it? I don't believe that. Jesus told me that. The earth he's given to the children of men. Don't look around and blame the devil. You people have been governing wrong. The earth's in trouble because of humans. Amen. So he still has. We've got to build that capacity. So I've given you two things that will build the capacity. Neither one of them are easy. The first one's found in Luke chapter 17. Forgive me for all the review, but sometimes review sounds like the first time you've ever heard it. Luke 
Learning is the art of repetition. Experience is the art of evaluating learning. You've got to evaluate what you, well, I heard that. You know, I've heard that before. No, you haven't. If you are not so amazed by what God is trying to show you, you have not seen his harvest for you yet. You need to be amazed. You say, well, I'm not amazed. Well, you don't expect much. Thunderous quiet. Offenses and forgiveness. The hardest things that we'll ever do is to learn how to handle offenses. The Bible calls offenses in the Greek language scandalon. It means the shiny part of the trap where the bait's put. It's like a big mouse trap. You put that bait on that little dumaflobby. And when the mouse touches that, the, 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 the killing thing comes over and whacks them between the connection of the head and the heart. See, God's trying to show us something. When we touch the bait of offense, we cannot get from our head to our heart. So we stay intellectually connected to what's happened to us. And we say, that's not fair. How many, don't raise your hand, but how many ever thought it wasn't fair what you went through? And that shouldn't be, listen, do not stop me in the middle to tell me what I'm going through shouldn't be that way. I already know that. You got your eyes on the wrong thing. I'm moving towards what should be, not what shouldn't be, right? He calls those things that be not as though they are, not those things that are as though they shouldn't be. Amen. Romans chapter four, verse 17, if you need a reference. So he said in, in chapter one of, or chapter 17, verse number one, he said, it's impossible that no offenses should come. Jesus said it's absolutely impossible for you not to experience offenses. A couple of verses later, he says if somebody sins against you and does it seven times, in one version it says seven times 70 a day. That's 490 times, 16 hours of wake time. That's forgiveness every two minutes you're awake. Do the math. Divide 490 by 16. It'll give you a picture. You have to learn how to expand your capacity and forgive without respect to what the other person did to you or is doing in response to what they did to you. You do not need to wait until that person comes to you and says, I'm so sorry for what I did. And please, people of God, be mature. Please don't go to the person and say to them, well, I forgive you for what you did to me. They don't know they did it. They don't know. Don't go, don't, don't go do that. He said it's impossible. So we expand our capacity by these things that we go through. Put up that first quote for me, would you please, Paul, the one that that says opportunities for increase. Opportunities for increase in capacity often happen when life is inconvenient. I'm telling you, don't be waiting for God to show up when everything's hunky-dory in your life. I'm telling you, God shows up when things aren't so good. And he shows up to deal with you. I challenge you in your marriage and your relationship to start praying that God will change the other person you're in a relationship. I just challenge you to do that because he will work on your heart the minute you start talking that way. He is not interested in what anybody else does. He's interested in what you do. He's an individual, intimate God for you. Don't try and fix other people. Second thing is believing beyond human reason. I was thinking the other day about this one, that it's important for us to recognize That so much of what the Bible shows to us as an example 
is beyond human reason. How many of you remember the story when the little boy died in Elijah or Elisha's day? And the woman came out and said, the, the child, he's, he's dead. And, and, and Eli, I think it was Elisha. It doesn't really make any difference. It's only right there in those two stories. And, and so he, he kicked everybody out. Now, here's where it gets really, really naturally hard to process. You remember this story? The prophet stretched himself out, hand upon hand, leg upon leg, mouth upon mouth of this young dead boy. Now imagine if the nanny cam is working. Here's a guy who has stretched himself out on a a young boy underage. It goes beyond human reasoning. Don't do that unless God calls you to. When Jesus walks up to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, I always find it interesting He yells, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus shows up, still wrapped in the death stuff. I'm thinking, you know, if God's going to raise somebody from the dead, in fact, Lazarus' family and stuff said, don't go there, he stinks. He'd been dead over three days. By the way, Jesus waited past their tradition. Their tradition said that if somebody's dead for less than three days, God might change their mind. He waited for four. Why? Because it's beyond human reason. Beyond human reason. And he called him forth and he said, now he said to the people, loose him and let him go from his grave clothes. Isn't that interesting? It's beyond human reason. Take his funeral suit off. See, occasionally when God increases our ability or our capacity to carry, he does it beyond human reason. God says, given it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together. That's beyond human reason. There's no way that you can give and end up with more. It's beyond human reason. There's no way a little family in Yuma, Ray, Eckley, um, Kirk, um, um, I don't know where everybody's from. I, just, I know I saw, I thought I saw Karen here today. So not, I saw somebody here from that area. My point is, Nobody thinks anything good can come out of these little towns. Nobody thinks anything can come good out of a church in these little teeny towns. Nobody thinks that. It's beyond human reason. But what does God do? He takes us past how we understand things. Put up that next quote, would you please, Paul? He takes us to this place. There's a difference in how you understand inconvenient times in your life. I want to tell you, it was inconvenient for me when I faced some of the things I've faced. It's very inconvenient. I don't want to go through these things. I don't want to hear what I'm hearing. I don't want to have to process what I see. I don't want to have to come against what I think. I don't want to have to stand by myself. But you never stand alone. You always stand with Jesus. Did you know that Jesus stands with you when you're wrong? He didn't say he'd never leave you or forsake you if you're always right. At your stupidest point, oh, I used the S word. At your most significant time of lack of intelligence. 
God is standing right next to you. You say, no, he's not, or he wouldn't let me go through this. Maybe when you're going through it, just go ahead and lift up your eyes and see what he's showing you because he will show you some stuff that you'll be able to carry with you for the rest of your life. And you say, well, I don't want it. Okay, here's the thing. When you're immature, what do you think God's target is? Your maturity. Come on. How many ever had your kid be immature? I mean, we've got, you know, a gaggle of grandchildren, and I love every one of them. But occasionally, especially the boys, occasionally the boys come up with ideas. My grandsons that are old enough to drive, or almost old enough to drive, think they can drive. My nine-year-old grandson sent a video applying for my job. He's nine. Yeah. He, he was so professional. He said, please consider hiring me. Wow. He, 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 he's prepared to tell you what Jesus says to him. See, he's got the job description down. He's just nine. We're going to leave that one in the oven for just a second. See, there's a difference in how you understand inconvenient times in your life. One way defines you. You become a victim to your circumstance. The other way refines you and you lift up your eyes to the level of what Jesus has paid for in your life. It's your choice. I'm telling you, people are so prepared to be a victim. Well, you can't believe what's happened to me. Oh, I can believe it. I saw your boat headed that direction. Come on, how many of you are watching somebody else's life and you recognize it's not going to end well? Right? I mean, you see them running right for the wall. And you go, this is not going to end well. Bam! They hit the wall. I told you it wasn't going to end well. Well, I can't believe I ran into the wall. Well, what were you doing? Well, I was just running. Do you know that when Elijah said to, to uh, Jezebel and her husband, what was his name? The, Ahab. Did I do that right? Ahab, is that what you said? Okay. He killed 400 prophets one day during his afternoon coffee break. And Jezebel said to him that she was going to do that to him and more within one day. Now, if you read this carefully, the Bible then goes on to say that Elijah was so scared that he ran one day from where he was. One day. When was he supposed to die again? Within one day. It didn't work. Where was his focus? On what somebody might do. He was the greatest victim in the Bible. And so then he sat down, he prayed, God, take my life. You're already outside of the warning track. She said one day, you're still alive. Pitch a hallelujah party. But what happened? Oh, I can't believe. And oh, this is going to be terrible. And then he made a grave victim's mentality mistake. Are you ready? He said, I'm the only one left. 
I'm the only one who's going through this terrible thing. I'm the only one who's had this kind of experience. Oh, it's so terrible. Nobody knows the trouble I have. Can I point out to you that everybody you walk by is going through something that you have little to no knowledge of and they need your grace. You are surrounded by people going through things in life. You say, well, yeah, but it's not as hard as mine. I got to point out something to you. Some of you got sissy problems. I'm telling you. Well, somebody cut in line in front of me in Walmart. Next time that happens, just pay for their groceries. Just bless them. You say, well, I wouldn't do that. They were being rude. Well, then don't return evil for evil. Bless them. Well, I couldn't do that. Why couldn't you? Because I'm stingy and selfish. Oh. (laughs) When immaturity is your focus, God will deal with your maturity. Well, amen. Number three. (laughs) This is the new one. How do we increase our capacity? We embrace the joy, we despise the shame, and we sit down. Most of us are unprepared to do this. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Let me just lay this out for you. Verse number one of chapter 12. Are you ready? Say amen. Therefore, we are also... Since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses. Now let me just stop and tell you something here. When you look up into heaven, heaven is looking back at you. When you notice what God is showing, it went past the noses of all the witnesses. You say, I didn't think they could see. Just stay with me for just a second. You have a... A, a gaggle, a cloud, a, a huge amount of people who are sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for you to pick up what God has shown you to run with it so they can clap for you. Come on. Some of you are old enough to have grandchildren who are not very athletic, but they still go out, you know. And, and so they go up to T-ball. I love T-ball. But, but dear Lord, if... Johnny hits the ball, it is a home run. Because no one can get it out from underneath the pile of all nine or ten of the other little kids who ran to wherever the ball was and jumped on it. And now the kid with the ball is trying to get up. While the other little kid is running for all he's worth, right? And he's trying to get around. You, you understand that when that happens, you stand up as inconsequential as a home run in T-ball is and you clap and you want a shirt with your grandson's or granddaughter's picture on it that says, yep, they belong to me. They're awesome. <laughs> and we clap, yay! I'm telling you, heaven has a cheering section for the race that you're called to run. And they're cheering for you even when you're feeble at it. You say, well, I'm not feeble at it. I'm running really good. Well, when was the last time? Tracy said it in Sunday school this morning. When was the last time you were running your race and somebody pointed out to you that they didn't like how you were running and you stopped to argue with them? See, that happens in politics all the time. You do not have to stop and argue with people who don't agree with you. 
Keep running your race. Amen. You all know that, that Tracy and I have been through some stuff. That's not no badge of honor here. But I want to tell you that occasionally when you go through stuff, some people think they're helping you by saying stuff that's stupid. Oh, I'm sorry, Terry. I hope I don't offend your sensibilities. They just say the craziest stuff. And I'm thinking, what makes you think that way? And of course, I'm trying to be gracious. I'm trying to lay aside every weight. And then people come up to me and say, yeah, I know. You know, our daughter-in-law has cancer. And her cancer has not produced new spots, yea, God. Nor has the original tumor that was inoperable gotten bigger. In fact, it's gotten smaller and is stable. So please don't come up to me and tell me your story about your person who died from cancer. Okay? You can say, well, that's what happens to everybody. Listen, if you're born again, you don't have to die. See, and people say, well, you know, there's only two things you got to do in this world. That is ignorance on steroids. You do not have to pay taxes if you don't want to. You know, don't do it. I will tell you, if you don't pay taxes long enough, they will give you a place to live and feed you. It's awesome. You don't have to. But more importantly, you don't have to die. You can take the death of Jesus Christ and live it out in your life so that you'll never taste death. So quit telling people what it's like to die. People think death is some sort of good thing, but they don't think it's good because of Jesus. They think it's good because it removes the amount of time we have to suffer. If you're suffering, we should just die early. Get out of the suffering. Who thinks that way? Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I, I've, I've, done, I've done so many funerals in my, in my life, and, and I've talked with so many families, and let me just tell you something. The weight that ensnares us is not that easy to lay aside because we're so captivated by our humanness. But I've never met a family who wouldn't have given their savings account to spend one more day with their loved one. Just one more day. Just one more day. We've got to lay aside some weights. And the sin, which so easily snares us, and let us run with endurance. Now let me point out something to you. When it says run with endurance, the implication is the endurance has already been built. God never puts you in a battle that He hasn't graced you to win. If you choose a battle that you want to win, you may not have the grace to win it from God. But every battle you're called to, you've already developed the stamina, the endurance. Run the race with endurance. He didn't say run the race as you develop endurance. He's telling you run the race that you are already endured to run. So please stop saying you can't handle this anymore. And please, it's not in the Bible that God won't give you any more than you can handle. In fact, the biblical precedence is God gives you more than you can handle so that you will trust him. Here's my, here's my encouragement to you. 
Would you please move the line of what you think you can handle shorter? God, I got to get off these steps in about 10 minutes and I'm not sure I can do it without you. Now I can fall down these steps, but I got a stiff knee. Everybody feel sorry for me? Oh, yeah. I noticed it. I was in a business the other day and they said, I noticed you're limping. Yeah, I am. My leg hurts. Well, what'd you do? I said, well, not, not great proud about this, but I used a cooler as a ladder. It was working well until I decided to go down the steps that were non-existent. And you know, everybody will tell me a story about whatever led to their knee replacement. Well, you know, I did that. You know, we fell off and broke my shoulder. Had to have my whole shoulder replaced. Oh, congratulations. He said, run with endurance. There are things we do in life with human endurance. We stay in the battle. We look the devil in the face till he gets the heck out of the way. We stay in the race. It's the race God has called us to. But see, a lot of times we say, oh, I don't want to be in this race. It's too hard. In the Klein family, there was always a rule. If you start something, finish it. You may never have to do it again, but you're going to finish. Now, my family was built for sports other than wrestling. But one of my sons went out for wrestling. And after about the second match, he came home and he said, I don't want to wrestle anymore. It's not an option. You wrestle to the end of the season. Why? Because endurance is developed when you go through things you'd rather not go through. Now, he didn't need the endurance for wrestling. He needed the endurance for something else in his life. You don't need the endurance for a pastor who preaches too long on a Sunday morning for today. You need the endurance to sit underneath at times what God is doing in your life. You say, well, but can it just be easier? It really can't. I'm sorry. It really can't. Notice what it says. Then run with the race is set before us. You know, it's just the race is, is, is sent to us. And it's private. It's private. I skipped a, 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 a quote. I'm not going to go back to it. Um, oh, you know what? We got time. Thank you. I heard you. Put up that next quote, would you please? So much of the time when we're developing endurance, we're actually fearful of what humans will say. Because it is. It's easier not to stand. I'll just tell you. It's just easier not to stand. But it's not better for you. See, people are so fearful of what man will say about being realistic. The number of times that I've been told I wasn't realistic would shock you. I'm the most realistic person you'll ever meet. But my realism lots of times comes from heaven. And so you think I'm nuts and I think I'm real. One of us is right. Reality is based in heaven, not on earth. See, when people think you're not being realistic, they'll embrace unbelief. Well, it's just, a number of pastors have said this to me. It's shocking. I said, you know, God's a God of abundance. And they tell me about their, their experience. 
Well, he's not an abundance to me. You don't believe he's an abundance, do you? Well, no, but he's not. See, they'll tell you about his, their experience. They'll literally embrace unbelief. See, when you're not in control of something, you might embrace crazy so that you don't have to embrace the fact that you're not in control. The number of times that I've heard people say, well, God could have done that if people would have just prayed. Are you kidding me? If we don't get enough people to pray, God's not going to move? Let's just take that back as far as we can. How many people were here when God said, let there be light? How many of you did God come to you and say, hey, do you think it'd be a good idea if I kill my own son? Did he come and get your opinion? The Bible doesn't consult your opinion before being true. God's work in your life doesn't consult your opinion. You all have opinions of things that you would have rather not gone through. But you have had your capacity increased. And now, when you face a similar circumstance or help somebody with a similar circumstance, you have the answer from heaven. And it doesn't listen to this 12-set CD tape thing here or read these 17 books. It's, here's what God said. That'll help you. Notice what it says in the second verse. It says, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. It literally means looking away from all else to Jesus. Looking away from all else to Jesus. You've got to do it, people of God. You say, well, but you don't understand, Pastor. I'm going through this, this, this so many things. If you're here under the sound of my voice, and you're an American, and there's no one parked outside your town with rockets from Iran to blow up your house and kill your children and rape your wife, pardon me, you don't have problems. You just have complaints. You see, sometimes we look to everything else and hope Jesus is looking in the same direction. What we should do is ignore everything else and look to Jesus until we get something from Him. Because when we get something from Him, it's eternal. When you get something from the world, I will tell you, the news cycle in today's world is less than 24 hours. The thing that was a problem yesterday isn't a problem today. There's a new problem. Oh, it's a big problem. You can't imagine how big it is. In fact, nothing can happen. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, in four minutes and 45 seconds, if Jesus... Oh... I think that was a rapture countdown. I don't know why that was there. Hey, listen, <laughs> remember to tell me what that was about, Jeremy, will you please? <laughs> I was pretty sure Jesus was calling us all home in four minutes and 45 seconds. But since he's not, just hang on. I just got a couple more things. <laughs> Sometimes you got to ignore what you can see. I cannot get said in four minutes and 45 seconds what I want to say to you today. And so let me just hustle 
and say, look unto Jesus, away from everything else, the author and finisher, who for the joy that was set, notice that the joy was set. He had to look past his circumstances to something other than his circumstance. I will tell you that having railroad sized nails driven through your feet and your hands, being poked in the side with a spear, having a crown of thorns pressed onto your head, having your back hamburgered by, by, by whips, didn't feel good. It captivated Jesus's consciousness until he got to the cross. And then he looked beyond it and he said, that's a good thing to see right now. The joy that was set before. I don't know exactly what Jesus saw, but I will tell you it had everything to do with what he was called to do. It had everything to do with his purpose. So I, I say it this way. When Jesus looked past the stripes on his back, when Jesus looked through the blood that was dripping from the crown on his head, when Jesus looked past the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet and the holes in his side, he saw me. And he smiled. He saw you and he smiled. If you can't embrace the joy of life today, you're missing something. And then he said, despising the shame. Literally calling it of no... See, what happens is Jesus was crucified as a common criminal. But he looked past the shame of identification. He despised it. He says, that is not who I am and you can't make me that by crucifying me. He despised it. He refused to hold it up. And he endured the cross. Your cross life is private. You pick it up. You deny yourself. You choose to remain under it. It's private. He despised the shame. He thought against it. He was literally careless in response to shame. He said, I don't care what people say. I've seen the end of this. He looked past. Shame is when your opinions and the opinions of others make you what you've done. Make what you've done who you are. I refuse shame. See, like you, I have a past. But like you, I also have the ability to look into my future. And my future and your future in Jesus Christ is awesome. Let's embrace the joy. But look at the last one. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Despising the shame. And he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the way you, the way you increase capacity is you take that race, you endure it, you choose the cross, you despise the shame, and you sit down. It is very hard to be animated against something when you sit down. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and about verse 6 that, that Jesus Christ, that God put us together, raised us up together with Him and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Jesus sat down, you sat down inside of Him. You are seated in heavenly places. You are not to be affected by worldly or earthly things. You're seated in heaven. You say, how can you do that, Pastor? By not putting my eyes on what comes against us. 
I hope you can get this because the sit, the, 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 the sitting down thing, it's the most important thing that you can do. Because if you can't see yourself sitting with Jesus, you haven't seen his harvest for you. If you can't see yourself sitting with Jesus, you haven't seen his harvest for you. Recently, in a time of prayer, I found myself not saying anything. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. Normally, I need to tell God what he needs to do. And, and I just kind of turned sideways. And in my spirit, man, I saw Jesus talking with God. And I was so captivated by that. All I did was lean in to hear. And then I came out of that little vision thing. And I thought, well, you didn't let me hear. He says, hearing's not the important part. Leaning in is. When you're seated in Jesus, lean in. Lean in. Remember the disciple who Jesus loved? What did he do? He put his head on the chest of his beloved Savior. Just lean in. You may not hear anything. Or you may hear what Tracy and I heard last week. Great instruction about how to lead this church. There's some things God's asking us to do. So here's one of them. We preach these messages and we don't give you an opportunity to respond. So as the music team moves, and we'll get a little music going in the background, I want to give you the opportunity to respond. You say, well, what does that mean, Pastor? It means you heard and your heart's been moved. Here's what I want from you. I want you from this day forward, every chance you get to take a step forward in faith. I want you to step out of your aisle, come up here. I want you to stay in your seat and lift your hands and say, I receive that. Pray for me. I want you to find a way to respond to what you heard as if it's real. I hope that makes sense to you. Because it's something's going to become a part of our church. We're going to take time at the end of the service just to give you the opportunity to respond. So stand with me, would you please? You say, what do you want us to do, Pastor? I want you to do whatever God calls you to do. I'm giving you the opportunity. If you want, I'm not going to come down unless you want me to and pray for you. But if you want to make a step towards the front and say, you know what, Lord, I heard you. I heard you that I've got to embrace the joy because I'm running a race that you've designed. See, that hits your heart. Just respond. Just take a step of faith. Step out. Come up. Lift your hand. Go, yes, Lord, that was me. And just take the next two or three minutes to respond not only in your heart, but with your physical body. Say, Lord, that's me. Help me. Help me to walk in that. Now bow your heads. Father, in Jesus' name today, we want to respond to your truth. We want to find our way bowing before you, hands raised before you, steps of faith taken in front of you. Father, we want to respond to your truth. We are your people. We know we can increase the capacity to carry your word forward if we'll just run the race, embrace the joy, despise the shame, and sit down in Jesus. So Father, thank you today. We just respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing something for us, would you please?
Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch Sermon Slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening. 